Hey everyone, this is Mark in Chicago with a new episode of Media Riot. On this show, we'll take a look at the latest movie from Sandra Bullock and George Clooney titled Gravity, the latest album from Nine Inch Nails called Hesitation Marks, a review of the touring version of the 2012 Broadway revival of Evita, and Lionel Richie is out on his first U.S. tour in seven years. Can he still get us dancing on the ceiling? We'll let you know. theaters now is the movie Gravity, starring Sandra Bullock and George Clooney. In the film, Bullock and Clooney play astronauts who, due to large and fast-moving space debris caused by satellites being destroyed, a real fear for astronauts, are sent hurtling into space and they try to get back to their ship. Now they show this much in the trailer, and that sounds like a pretty thin plot, and the movie is 90 minutes long, so it's not a short. So this isn't really a spoiler. The ship is damaged, and they have to get to a space station instead. Now, the rest of the plot I can't tell you without giving spoilers, but we can discuss quite a bit about this film from what I just told you. Gravity is directed by Alfonso Cuaron. Now, his name might not ring a bell, but from here on out, it should. His most notable film to date was the third Harry Potter movie, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. But his masterpiece, and I do mean masterpiece, is E2 Mama Tambien. If you have not seen it, see it. It's a coming-of-age-slash-road film that's, well, pretty racy at times. Let me put it this way. He made a film that could probably make the French blush. Quran is one of the most exciting and talented directors of the modern age. Skipping over Harry Potter, all of Quran's films have lush, beautiful cinematography and characters you can clasp onto. He's only made a handful of films, an adaptation of A Little Princess, an adaptation of Great Expectations, E2 Mama Tambien, Harry Potter, and Children of Men, which I will discuss more later in this review, and this year's Gravity. Mexican born and raised, he started off in Mexican TV and worked his way up to U.S. films. He, along with fellow Mexican directors, whom are called the Three Amigos of Cinema, including Guillermo del Toro, director of uh, Pan's Labyrinth and Hellboy, and Alejandro Naruta of Babel and 21 Grams, 
The three amigos have created a trifecta of directors who show you can have beautiful production values and strong characters at no matter how high or low the budget. Gravity will probably be nominated and at this point might win the Academy Award for production design. James Cameron, Mr. Sci-Fi Epic himself, praised Gravity by saying, I think it's the best space photography ever done. I think it's the best space film ever done. And it's the movie I've been hungry to see for an awful long time. Now Cameron is close, but I would consider uh, Gravity a flawed masterpiece. I'm giving Gravity three stars, but it's a very, very strong three stars. There is so much to love about this movie. This is one of those movies where, yes, you might have a giant flat screen at home, but you don't have a 3D IMAX screen. And sitting in the cavernous dark theater also helps immerse you in the experience of gravity. Bullock and Clooney and a crew of others are on a mission to do some minor upgrades to the Hubble telescope. Now the first 20 minutes of this movie is shot in one unbroken take. The ship and satellite slowly drift into view, like Omar Sharif's introduction in Lawrence of Arabia. You follow Clooney up and down and all around as he jetpacks around Bullock and fellow crew members, monitoring their work and lending a hand, or offering up long-winded stories. As they end their work, a message from Houston Space Command, voiced by an actor synonymous with space epics, Ed Harris, announces that the Russians have cavalierly and pretty stupidly used a missile to blow up a quote-unquote communications satellite, which is actually a broken spy satellite. Now, if you've never looked it up or seen it on PBS, there is a shitload of garbage in space, mostly satellites. And this causes Earth's orbit to look like a pool table. And one satellite or, or missile can become a Q-stick and another satellite a Q-ball. And when they connect, they shatter, hitting other satellites. Then they shatter and hit another satellite. Then they shatter and hit another satellite and another and another and another. And the next thing you know, you have a cloud of fast-moving projectiles in orbit. In gravity, this causes a race against time as the shuttle and crew need to get out of the way of the projectile debris as it gathers more debris and speed. But as seen in the trailers, Bullock gets launched in this, into space. She was attached to the shuttle, so she had no jetpack to control her position if she came loose from the shuttle. Okay, this isn't really a spoiler. They do catch her, because this is a movie and not a documentary, where she would just drift forever into, into space. And plus, there was still an hour of the movie left. So Clooney saves Bullock, but the sh shuttle is damaged, and they need to head to a space station. I'll stop there with the plot. And, well, this isn't really a spoiler. You know, they need to get back to Earth safely. Now, this is where I get to the part about why Gravity is a flawed masterpiece. Quran is a strong visual director. In his non-Harry Potter movies, the images are striking and rich in color. The lush greens of Great Expectations, the dry, grainy images of E2 Mama Tambien, and the grainy television, TV style of war reporting in Children of Men. And actually, a lot of the camera tricks Quran used in Children of Men are used more often in Gravity. Now, if you haven't seen Children of Men, see it. Uh, Children of Men stars Clive Owen in a dystopian future where the population is infertile. But one day a woman is found pregnant and she, and she must be saved from the police state government. Children of Men was famous for its criticism of U.S. involvement in Iraq and long unbroken tracking shots. Two famous sequences from that film are a 360 shot through and around a car as it drives along 
and the final stand of the revolutionaries against the government in long and broken takes, shot how you might see war footage. The reason I bring this up is because these camera tricks are used sparingly in Children of Men. In Gravity, the camera never stops moving. There's a brief moment where the camera is stable, but for almost 90 minutes, the camera moves like it's been placed inside a hamster ball, inside a bigger hamster ball, then rolled down a hill. Now, it's not vertigo-inducing. It's very smooth, like a gently rolling roller coaster. But after the amazing 20-minute opening sequence, the camera keeps on floating around and around and around and around. And I understand Karan is trying to mimic that in space. There really is no up or down, but he overdoes it. Even when characters are stable, the camera floats around. It starts to feel like Karan and his cinematographer, a personal favorite of mine, five-time Academy Award-nominated Emmanuel Lubitsky, tries to outdo the last shot they just did. It got to the point where I noticed they were spinning the camera, and it didn't do anything to add to the tension. The movie's tense already. I'll put it like this. It's like yelling at your deaf dog to stop licking his balls. He can't hear you, and he doesn't care, and it feels great to him even though it annoys the hell out of you as he does it in front of the TV. The other thing about this movie is the tension. Quran showed with Children of Men that he can keep the uh, tension ratcheted high and sustained, and with gravity, he has great race-against-time moments, but the other tense moments are, at times, like, humorous. There are tense moments of, like, quick, grab Sandra Bullock before she hurdles into space, but the other, quote-unquote, tense moments are, like, we need to escape, quickly. What's that beeping? Out of gas? Or like their spacesuit would get hooked on cables. There are truly grab the arm handle moments, but the other half, you chuckle and say, wow, sucks to be you. The tone varies wildly, uh, which I wasn't sure if Karan intended. Oh, and I really haven't mentioned much about the acting. Uh, this is mostly Bullock's movie and she carries it capably. Uh, movies like this is where you need an A-list Hollywood actor. You need actors with personalities big enough to not be dwarfed by the sheer size and scope of the film they're in. Uh, yeah, so yeah, Bullock and Clooney do fine. This movie shows why they get their names above the title. So, go see Gravity. You'll probably be seeing one of the top ten movies of the year. Now, should you see it in 2D or 3D? I saw it in 3D and, well... Sadly, this was some of the worst 3D I've seen all year. I do like the fact that Quran is not above throwing things out in the audience. I'm paying extra. I want things to fly by my head. But I don't know how many times I'm going to have to say this. 3D glasses are polarized lenses, like sunglasses. They make things darker. The movie is set in space, and if you're not in sunlight, it's pretty dark. And with the 3D glasses, it gets darker. Also... The tchotchke that floats through in 3D is neat, but the other objects and people in the shot look flat. At certain points, I took off my 3D glasses and thought the depth looked the same with or without glasses. I'm getting a little tired of being burned by 3D. But don't let this hold you back from seeing, no wait, experiencing gravity. <laughs> Now 
Available now is the latest album by Nine Inch Nails, titled Hesitation Marks. This is singer and only official member Trent Reznor's newest album of songs since 2008's The Slip, and his first since winning the Academy Award with fellow musician Atticus Ross for the score to David Fincher's The Social Network. Let's take a listen to a track. nice to see Trent back with Nine Inch Nails. After his last album, The Slip, and its subsequent tour, he hinted at retiring Nine Inch Nails as a touring outfit, but still releasing music in some fashion. In 2008, the same year he released The Slip, he also released an instrumental album called Ghosts 1-4. through Four, four separate sections of nine tracks apiece, with tracks averaging around two and a half to three and a half minutes, with a couple closer to five minutes. Ghosts wasn't a huge direction change for Trent to take. As Trent has gotten older, his songs and album have gotten longer with more complex orchestrations. Many pop musicians move this way, from Paul Simon to Brian Eno, who heavily influenced Ghosts' style. The music Trent and Atticus Ross composed on their award-winning score for The Social Network is very similar to Ghosts, quiet and moody. And this low-impact, slow composition style has greatly influenced the latest Nine Inch Nails album, Hesitation Marks. Hesitation Marks is best described as Trent maturing. Going from the teenager who sat in his all-black bedroom for hours scribbling angry and sad lyrics about how no one understands him or loves him, to today, where all the money he made from those angsty lyrics can afford him to live in a setting like those gothic paintings he recreated in videos. He can sit in his lavish, shadowy gothic house in a giant chair, maybe a black cat or a bird next to him, brooding next to a fire while sipping absinthe, thinking, 
moody thoughts. <laughs> yes, gone is the angry angst of pretty hate machine, and now is a man who has survived it, whatever it is, and is now tormented by it. Uh, just to get this out of the way, Trent has always written angsty songs that talk to the tormented teenager inside of all of us. It's just that he has written some of the best angsty songs ever. He is the artist all black-haired-dyed teens want to be, and he writes the songs people throw on at one point when they're having a really bad day. Now, will Hesitation Marks become a classic like The Downward Spiral? Not really. It's flawed, but strong. Trent has really taken to instrumental composing. The songs themselves on Hesitation Marks are well-crafted, but on the downside, because Trent has gone from angsty to moody, there is no cathartic release, meaning he doesn't scream a lot in this album. The songs build and build, but there's no release. He just, stare, he just sits there and stares at you from his big gothic chair. Also, the album is too long at 14 songs. This could have been much better at 9 songs. The album clocks in at just a touch over an hour, and Trent could have gotten his point across within 45 minutes. And what does he talk about on this album? Some of the songs make Trent sound like he's a survivor. A survivor of what? Well, being Trent Reznor. He's led this dark, painful life, and he's come out the other side. He's seen things, man. Like on songs, All Time Low and Find My Way. And also, it sounds like he's tired of being Mr. Nine Inch Nails, with songs like Copy of A, with lyrics, Everything I Say Has Come Before. Now, Trent has honestly gone through dark times of depression and drug abuse, but these days, Trent is now a dad of two kids with a smoking hot wife. <laughs> Some songs are more intense than others, but overall the songs have a low, intense beat, which gives the vibe of a guy sitting in a giant gothic chair ready to lash out at you. But he never does. Now there's nothing wrong with mellowing as you age. You can't be an angsty teen forever, or you end up like Blink-182. But as the album drags on, and I do mean drags, the songs become more and more lifeless. The last song with lyrics, While I'm Still Here, is only four minutes long, but feels like eight minutes. If you don't make it through the entire album in one sitting, don't worry. Uh, like, if you stop around, say, track 10, you get the idea of the album. Now, does this mean Trent needs to recreate the yelling of Pretty Hate Machine? No, but you need something to spark up his songs, because he's just laying vocals to his instrumentals. Trent, he seems he'll always have some darkness in him, and he needs to tap into that to give his vocal songs more intensity. Oh, uh, uh, side note, for some reason the song Came Back Haunted, I could be wrong, but for some reason I think he's talking about Hollywood. Now, his composing for films isn't his first foray into Hollywood. He produced soundtrack albums for Oliver Stone and David Lynch, but for some reason the lyrics in this song come across as like, you know, he may have seen some shit, but you people in Hollywood are on a whole other level of fucked up attitude. Now... Trent, you have proven, proven you know how to age gracefully. Do your composing as Trent Reznor, but when you get to the Nine Inch Nails persona, get out that big old, get out of that big old gothic chair and go sit in the corner with the curtains drawn and flip through your old angst-filled notebooks and find that intensity you once have. The slip was only five years ago, and you brought the intensity to that. Remember, Trent, it's better to burn out than fade away.
On his first American tour in seven years is Lionel Richie. Say what? Say you say me. Even though he's a pop culture icon for his hits from the mid-70s through the mid-80s, he hasn't been able to recapture the magic he had earlier in his career. Lionel has continued to release albums since his multi-platinum albums Can't Slow Down in 1983 and Dancing on the Ceiling in 1986. But a mix of too much time between albums, his next full album of original songs wasn't released until 1996 with the album Louder Than Words, and Changing Styles kind of tripped up Lionel and he's been releasing middling albums ever since. These albums are pleasant but forgettable. Easy listening albums, releasing singles, made for when VH1 still showed videos. Right there between Michael Bolton and John Cicada. Remember that guy? You might have heard most of Louder Than Words in the 90s while standing in an elevator. Hell, his 1998 album, Time, didn't even chart. Just to prove this album exists, here's a little bit of the title track. Lionel's following albums, Renaissance, Just For You, Coming Home, and Just Go, have been released with varying degrees of success. His latest album, 2012's Tuskegee, is him singing country duets of his biggest hits with the likes of Willie Nelson, Rascal Flatts, and Shania Twain. This has given Lionel his first number one album since Dancing on the Ceiling, 26 years ago. Also, why is it when rock stars have creative slumps or lost their mojo, do they do country albums? So, is this a redneck tour? Thank God, no. Titled All the Hits, All Night Long, Lionel hits the road to play only the hits all night long. And let me tell you, if you drop the irony for one night, this is a blast. Lionel, at his peak, was just about to was able to reach just about everyone. I bet you even the guys from Slayer or Hatebreed have a favorite Lionel song. Lionel songs could be a touch on the corny or modeling side, but the man had an amazing talent to keep it just this side of that, which led him to be able to entertain millions. Now, when he says the hits, that's it. No song after 1986, and then going back from there to his days with the Commodores. Taking the stage at Chicago's United Center to a pretty much sold-out crowd, Lionel played to a mostly white, closer-to-fifty crowd. There were younger people to bring the age curve down, but no one really below, like, 30, unless they were in the nosebleed seats. The crowd got up and danced to All Night Long, dancing on the ceiling, brick house, and running with the night, then sat down, and if you were there with your significant other, held hands, and let Lionel serenade you with truly, three times a lady, easy, Endless love, and say you say me. Lionel was ex- as excited as the crowd, and I'm not kidding about being excited. I think a soccer mom threw her underwear on stage. Something was thrown on stage that caused Lionel and his guitarist to take pause and stare. 
And that backing band, they played well. They sounded like the albums, which was the point. And Lionel went solo on the piano for the ballads. The only point that was awkward was his closing. After running through the hits, Lionel closed out with We Are the World. A very meaningful song, but kind of an awkward way to close out the party atmosphere he worked hard to create. He wanted to honor his passed-on friend Michael Jackson, who he wrote it with. And also, I guess, kind of to remind everyone, you know, love one another because we only have one world, and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, it was kind of awkward. It was more awkward than touching after spending two hours dancing on the ceiling with your truly endless love to be reminded that people are starving and their lives suck. So, yeah, aside from that uh, little set list quibble, do you like Lionel Richie? Of course you do. Don't lie. Are you ready to easy rock? Yeah. Then get a ticket and go. Lionel turned 64 this year and still has the moves, while his mostly white audience still doesn't. And Lionel's voice is as strong as ever. Don't miss a chance to see the man who closed out your prom, homecoming, and or was your first dance at your wedding. And who also got your 80s theme party going with dancing on the ceiling. I hope that tours like this help aging singers like Lionel dust off the cobwebs and help them regain that magic and release music that shows why they are superstars in the first place. Until then, check out Lionel Richie on his All the Hits All Night Long tour. Whoa, what a feeling. Out touring the nation right now is the 2012 Broadway revival of Evita. I will say this up front. Wow, 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 wow. This is a spectacular production. This touring version is based on the Broadway production directed by Michael Grandage and choreographed by Rob Ashford. Evita is not a personal favorite of mine, but if you want to see a grand staging of a Broadway show in your area, go see Evita. From the stark lighting that cuts the dark like a ray of sun after a storm, to the perfectly performed dance sequences, to the sets that are almost uh, a leading cast member in itself, this is old-school, grand, and showy Broadway. Before I get into how wonderful the staging is, quickly, Evita tells the story of Eva Perón, the First Lady of Argentina from 1946 till her death in 1952. A lot of her youth is muddled in history, but... Eva, a.k.a. Evita, is a small-town girl who wants to make it big in the city, and she makes it with just about every guy she can that might move her up a rung on the social ladder. Her final rung is General Juan Perón, 
who later goes on to become El Presidente Perón. Evita at first loves the greatest limelight of them all, political power, but when life becomes too hollow for her, she becomes a crusader for the poor. Now, the military leaders and the bourgeoisie didn't like this harlot from day one, and her work with the poor pissed them off even more. Before her, present can, before her husband can appoint her El Vice Presidente, Evita succumbs to cervical cancer at the age of 33. At the time of her death, she weighed 79 pounds. Nearly 3 million people attended Evita's funeral in the streets of Buenos Aires. Before her death, she was given the official title of Spiritual Leader of the Nation, an honorary position created by the Argentinian Congress and only ever held by Evita. Yeah, Evita always wanted to be a star, and well, her life made great fodder for her to be immortalized as a star. Composed by Andrew Lloyd Webber and lyrics by Tim Rice, Evita opened in 1978 and has enjoyed multiple productions over the years starring the finest actors. Its Broadway debut had Patti Lapone as Evita and Manny Patinkin as Che Guevara, the narrator of the story. The production out now has Caroline Bowman as Evita, Josh Young as Che, and Sean McLaughlin as Juan Perón. Bowman is capable in her portrayal as Evita. She's a heck of a good dancer, a great stage presence, but an okay singer. The material might be beyond her range. At times it sounded like she was just yelling and not singing, but, you know, hey, not everyone can have Patti LuPone's lungs. But Bowman pulled it off well enough. And Sean McLaughlin as Juan Perón was just right. The magic of this production is Josh Young as Che. He could have read from the program and given you chills. This is a young man to watch. If you see his name attached to a musical, see it immediately. He hit every musical and emotional note perfectly, and thankfully he didn't overshadow Bowman. I'm giving this production three stars. Now the reason it's only three is because there's uh, inherent problems with the show itself. First, I'll never understand why Juan Perón's mistress gets a song. Vita shows up and kicks out the mistress, all within 30, the first 30 seconds of the mistress appearing on stage. And then the mistress gets a very beautiful solo song, but um, yeah, then she disappears and is never mentioned again. It's not like she represented the people of Argentina or something more deeper. Now, if you, the listener, would like to give a reason to the point of the mistress's existence, oh, please share, because her character is a waste of time. Also, the actress who portrays the mistress... Christina Alabadao. Um, yeah, from my seat, she looked like she was 12. Thankfully, she isn't. At first, I thought Evita was kicking out Juan's daughter. What? Then I realized it was the mistress. Then I got a little weirded out. This Alabado is a nice singer, but yeah, there has to be someone who looks more like a mistress and not a child prostitute. Now, and also, I understand that Weber is influenced by opera, but this is one show where everything shouldn't be sung. There are a couple of throwaway spoken lines, but it's not enough. Those not familiar with the story, especially the political aspect, need parts spoken to fully understand what is going on. And with every line sung, some songs just sound awkward because they're just pushing plot along. And when you sing without feeling, it becomes this blurry mush of music. And the last issue is, why is Che Guevara the narrator? Yes, he's from Argentina and... It was alive during her time, and it might be a good way to show how he developed his ideas of how to become a political, por political force through personality, but having Che narrate Evita's life 
draws attention away from Evita because you wonder, how will this affect Che? It's like Gandhi narrating Jesus Christ Superstar. I read originally Weber wanted Che to be an unknown, but Harold Prince pushed to have him to be Che Guevara. And hey, you know, why question Harold Prince? But over the years, Che has been portrayed as Che the Man instead of Che Guevara. Uh, the movie with Madonna does this too, Che the Man. I think this is a good idea. It would only make sense if Che and Evita did have an intense relationship or somehow Che's life was strongly, inf- or was strongly influenced by Evita. So, in the end, you have a four-star production. Yes, I'm including Bowman's lack of vocals. It's still four stars. In a three-star musical. When it comes to your town, see it. You will not be disappointed. A beautiful, fast-paced, full-bodied role production like this does not come around uh, that often. And to catch Josh Young before he becomes too big for road shows is a treat you will remember. Don't cry for me, Argentina. The truth is I never left you. All through my wild days, my mad existence, I kept my promise. Don't keep your distance And as for fortune And as for fame I never invited them Hey everyone, I'd like to thank you for downloading or streaming this episode of Media Riot. Media Riot is brought to you by Science. Taking all the fun out of the movie Gravity since opening day. I don't care if Gravity is not 100% accurate. Sandra Bullock in space is not 100% accurate. But I fucking let it go and enjoy the movie. Jeez, you nerds. Science. Great in school, not at the movies. Media Riot is an Illinois production, and we'll see you next time. Bye now.